Okay, we, we are continuing on the chronological life of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. Ma- Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. And, and l- let me mention that the, the reason we, we can follow chronology, remember the, the Gospel of Luke is the one in chronological order, but there are things in between that Luke doesn't cover everything that we look at the other Gospels. And we know that verse 25 follows immediately after 24 because it says, at that time. So so that's how we know that. And it says, at that time, in verse 25, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So you see that Jesus turns to them and he he starts praising God. And he says, you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. This is in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. 25. So, So he says, you've revealed them to infants. And if you think about this, is Jesus somehow opposed? Is God somehow opposed to, to wise and intelligent? No, you can only take from the context of it that this is the so-called wise and intelligent. Because he's not revealing things to infants in the sense of newborns. So these are the so-called infants, the so-called babes, and the so-called wise, and the so-called intelligent. You know, Jesus, in fact, speaks, uh, or or Paul, in fact, speaks the same sort of thing in in, uh, 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 26, 1 Corinthians 1, 26. Um, uh, let, me, let me start reading from 1 Corinthians 1, 22. 1 Corinthians 1, 22. For indeed the Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For your consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. So you see, he says that, that among us who believe, he says there's not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the base things of the world. I mean, this is what God chose to do. He chose to reach down like this and go to the base things of the world and choose those. So if we turn back to Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, it says that, he has chosen the, the, that he has revealed these things to infants. So who are the wise and intelligent? Remember, he's contrasting here the Pharisees. 
what the Pharisees and Sadducees had put upon the people, the Pharisaical rules, the so-called wise and intelligent, you've hidden them. You've hidden it from them. And those who supposedly knew very little, they're the ones that are catching on. He says, this is what you, you were pleased with. Then he says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and to whom the Son wills to... And, and, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. So, even our knowing of God is the grace of God. You know, if we are ever to think, well, wow, you know, I, I came to God. No, you came to God because God revealed Himself to you. Everything, everything is wrapped up in God. So, if, if you see in Matthew chapter, uh, if you look in Matthew chapter uh, 16, Matthew, just turn a few pages to Matthew chapter 16, and you look in verse 15, Matthew 16, verse 15, it says, Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So when Peter proclaimed, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said, There is no way you could have known that had my Father not revealed that to you. This is why we have to pray, Lord, open my eyes as I read your word. Open my eyes as I read your word. Then he says in verse 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So this is Matthew 11:28. This is the call to come to Him. He says, Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I mean, look at this promise. What religious leader can promise rest for followers? Rest for them. Rest for their souls. Jesus said, You come to me and I will give you rest. I was uh, uh, just trying to encourage my son this week as he's, he's studying for the MCAT exams. And he's just just constantly, day and night, pouring over these books, trying to learn everything. And I wanted to just give him this verse. I said, this can give you comfort. If you learn to do this, if you learn to do this, this would bring great comfort in your life. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. This take my yoke upon you is a very common expression among religious Jews especially the Pharisaical schools, they will say, take my yoke upon you. That means come into my school. Come into my school of learning and learn from me. It is not a process of just getting saved. Jesus said, you have to now come into my school and learn from me. And if you do, if you do learn from me, he says, then I will give you rest. It is not just a matter of receiving Jesus. It is a matter of learning from Him. And then we will receive yes, rest. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Look at the description that Jesus Himself speaks of, of Himself. How does Jesus describe Himself? He describes Himself not as a mighty conqueror, not as one who's going to defeat all his enemies and put them under his feet. He describes himself as one who is gentle and humble in heart. 
And he says, if you learn to do this, you will find rest for your souls. You will come to a time, maybe it's, you're already in it at this moment, but you will come to a time where you will feel particularly overwhelmed. Like, I cannot do this. I cannot get all of this done. And then what will happen is, if you would learn to come to Him, if you would learn to spend time with Him, come into His school, learn from Him, spend time before Him, you will find rest for your souls. This again and again happens in my life. I get with my quiet time in the morning and I think, how am I going to get everything done that I need to get done today? And I spend time with the Lord and this level of being really uptight just starts to calm down. That Jesus is in charge and He says, you will find rest for your souls. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is how He describes it. He said, if you will come to get to know Me, I will take this stress level that you're under and just lower it right down. He says, this is what He would do for us. He would lower down the stress level and you would find rest for your souls. Very few believers ever learn to tap into this. It's a real shame. It is there. Very few learn to tap into this. This is what Jesus Himself describes to us that we ought to be doing. We ought to come close to Him in this way and then He says, if you're weary, if you're heavy laden, you have many things on your life, you come to me and I will give you rest for your souls. Okay, let's turn to Luke chapter 7 and pick up on the next point in Jesus' life. Luke chapter 7. And we're reading from verse 36. Luke 7, 36. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial full of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And and she kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Okay, so in verse 36, there are several occasions where Pharisees had invited Jesus to their home. And, and in most cases, it was, a, it, it was either an interrogation or an evaluation. There was some other motive here. But let, let's just give them the benefit of the doubt here. So the Pharisee invites Jesus into his house, and Jesus accepts. So Jesus is, is now communing with one of the very high-level people in the city. Jesus accepts, and it says that he's reclining at the table, because the, the tables were very low to the ground, and they would lean, usually they'd have a pillow, and they'd lean up on one arm, and they'd be lying on the ground with their head toward the table, and their feet away from the table. So that's how they ate. The table was only about six or eight inches off the ground. And they'd be down on, on one arm, or, or on a pillow, and that's why we get this picture that in John, in John's Gospel, that John would lean over and put his head on Jesus because they were kind of reclining anyway. 
So this is the way they ate. And it says there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And that's a euphemism for a prostitute. So there's this this prostitute woman, and when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. So it's when she learned. So some people think that this was a total setup, but it couldn't have been a total setup because when she learned, so Jesus was already at the house. She learned that he was there, and she took this alabaster vial of perfume, and she went to the house to see Jesus. Now, uh, there is a question, how did a prostitute, a woman like that, get into the Pharisee's house? Well, there were obviously a lot of people with Jesus. His disciples are with Jesus, so he's here because he's teaching them and his disciples are recording this. So there's not just Jesus, but there's, uh, there's a lot of other people. When there's a lot of people, homes are more open. So if, if I were to invite two of you over to my home for dinner the home would not be as open as when I invite 50 of you over for dinner. Because when you have 50 people over for lunch or for dinner, you know, another can wander in and you don't really notice it. If you have two people over for dinner and another wanders in, you notice it. So there must have been a a, a fairly substantial group of people there for this woman to be able to get into the Pharisee's home in the first place. And here she is in the home, and she's standing behind him, meaning that he's lying down, so his feet are out here away from the table, his head is more toward the table, and she's standing behind him at his feet, and she began to wet his feet with her tears, wiping them with her hair, and kissing his feet, and anointing his feet with the perfume that she had brought. So there's this picture going on, and it's interesting, that here is this prostitute, and Jesus does not pull his feet away and think, Oh, you know, I don't want to be seen near her. You know, people are going to think, she knows me. You know, this would be the typical reaction. So if some really, you know, garish looking woman were to walk in here with, you know, dressed, dressed in a way that's not really appropriate to church and she starts, you know, sashaying up and she kind of puts her arm around me, you'd start thinking, how does she know him? How does he know her? And I would naturally pull away because I want to protect my image, right? Because here I am in the Pharisee's house or in church, and Jesus doesn't pull his feet away. He leaves his feet there because he's not concerned about what these other people think. He's concerned about this woman. He leaves his feet there. You see, so often I want to separate myself from certain kinds of people lest other people see it, and then make a judgment concerning me. Jesus wasn't afraid of that at all. He wasn't afraid of what the masses would think of him going into a Pharisee's house. That, oh, they're going to think, oh, he's coming under the law now. He wasn't afraid of what the Pharisee was going to think and his friends when this woman is anointing his feet. And then the Pharisee, it says, now the Pharisee would invited him saw this and said to himself. So the Pharisee did not express anything verbally. Remember, this is still in the interrogation phase where they're not interrogating Jesus. That is going to come. Remember, there was the speaking to themselves concerning John and then the interrogation phase started once the ministry was deemed significant. 
Once this ministry will be deemed significant, then will come the, the verbal accusations. But here they were saying to, this Pharisee said to himself, if this man were a prophet, so he's not even giving him the Messiahship, he's just saying even if he were just a prophet, which is, you know, quite high, but still way below Messiah, even if, if this man were a prophet, he would know what sort of person this woman is who is touching him. He would know who and what sort of person this woman is. So it says, if this man were a prophet, it literally says he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner, that she is a prostitute. So he says, if he were a prophet, he would know who, he would know her name, and he would know her character, if he were a prophet. So, he has put a judgment in his own mind that this man can't, even, can't be the Messiah, he can't even be a prophet. Because if he were a prophet, he'd know her name, and he'd know her business. And if he knew her business, he never would allow this to go on. So what Jesus now is going to do is he is going to address this question. Remember, the Pharisee never verbalized this. But Jesus is going to to show that he's very much a prophet and much more. But he's first going to show that he's a prophet by speaking to the very situation that the Pharisee is just thinking in his own mind. You see what I mean? So he's underscoring that, you want to see if I'm a prophet? How's this? Let me tell you what you were thinking about. But Jesus doesn't go right ahead and say, you know, you're judging me. Let me tell you. He starts telling a story. He starts to tell a story. This is a beautiful way to deal with people who are caught in a situation. I've done it many times with students. I've done it with my children. They're caught in a situation doing something. And rather than to address them where they're going to be defensive, I tell them a story. So that they can be separated from the issue at hand and have a more objective evaluation just listening to the story. Commonly used in scriptures. When Nathan the prophet came to David, when David had sinned with Bathsheba, he didn't say, you sinner, you slept with Bathsheba. He said, there was a man who had a little lamb. And that lamb was like, a treasure to he and his family. And then a rich man came and killed that lamb. David says, that man ought to die for that. He has to now pay sevenfold for what he's done. Fourfold or sevenfold. And then Nathan said, oh, that's you. You're the man. You see, because you can objectively, when you're outside it, I'll tell you, I, I, I mean, something happened recently. I was talking to one student who's a, who's a great guy. I really, really like this student, but he can be a bit overwhelming. He's just coming and, hey, Dr. Tour, hey, da, da, just, just all over me. And he comes to my office and he's just, I'm like, oh, this guy would just go away. But, but I appreciate him because, because I've always learned that it's much easier to calm the fanatic than it is to raise the dead. So I would much rather have a person who's excited and calm him down a bit because when a person is just, you know, can't get excited about anything, it's very hard to, to deal with them. But anyway, I tried, I, so I said to him, have you ever known somebody who had a, a pet dog? I said, do you like dogs? He said, yeah, I like dogs. I said, I like dogs too. I said, but you know, have you ever known someone who has a pet dog and their pet dog, whenever they see you, they come running and just jumping up on you and putting their paws up on you and just licking your face and you know, sticking their nose in your crotch and you're trying to get back and get away and they're just all over you and they're just, 
and they're licking, and, and the owner thinks it's kind of cute, and you're like, you know, these are my nice clothes, and, this, and you want to avoid that dog? Not that you hate dogs, not that you even hate that dog, but the dog is overwhelming. He says, yeah, I've known people. I said, that is you. <laughs> and, you know, we got then to talking, and he said, you know, I, I understand I see. I said, I want people to appreciate you. I want people to like you. And you can be a bit overwhelming. So I tried to let him see with the dog. Have you ever known a dog like that? And it just, it's just too much. You know, I like dogs, but I like them when they come up and they sit down and they look at you and you pet them. Not when they're jumping up on me and knocking me over. So This is what Jesus does. He begins to tell a story that's devoid of Simon the Pharisee. This Pharisee's name was Simon. It's devoid of that. And then, so that Simon could then see. Verse 40, Then Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and another 50 when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he answered and he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with, the tears, with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she has, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven her. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven loves little. So, he tells this story. Simon is outside the story and he says, a money lender. So this is a man who lends money. Now remember, money lenders are not known for their graciousness. They will give you money. But when you don't pay back, you know, they break your fingers. I mean, money lenders are known. You don't mess around with money lenders. This is not going to the bank. These are, you know, the guys who, who loan money. You don't mess around with money lenders because they've got you know, strong hit men behind them that will fill in the details. One, one guy borrows 500 denarii. That's about two years' wage. A denarii is a day's wage, so two years is, a, is about 500 days' wage. So call it what you will, $50,000. The next guy is one-tenth of that, $2,500. And so the money lender graciously forgives them both. Well, who's going to love him more? And Simon the Pharisee says, well, I suppose the one whom he forgave more because it was a bigger debt. Jesus said, you're right. Then he calls, he says, Simon, you know, you invited me to your home. The customary thing when you would invite a guest in those days is that you would wash their feet, you would wipe their feet down because they wore these sandals and it was all dirt roads. That was customary. That's what people did. And then they will would often anoint their head with oil. That was customary. You have a guest, you do this. So you see, the Pharisee invited Jesus, but was not about to do the customary things, because probably the Pharisee too didn't want too many Pharisees to think he was getting too chummy with this guy Jesus, 
You know, everybody worries about their reputation. I do, everybody does. So he goes ahead, he starts to address the question, and he says, you gave me no kiss when I came in, and she hasn't ceased to kiss my feet. But look in verse 44, it's really telling. He says, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? From the first word, he says, do you see this woman? Do you know what woman means? Woman is just God's masterpiece. If you take people, human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation. He waited till the sixth day to create people. And then he created woman last. The masterpiece he left to last. Creation got more and more sophisticated. And then the last one he created was woman. He said, this is woman. This is really interesting. From the prostitute's perspective, a prostitute is never given a dignified name. Prostitutes are dogs. Prostitutes are property. Jesus calls her a woman. I mean, this is a shocking thing. What Jesus sees in this woman is womanhood. The masterpiece of his creation. And then he says, I entered your house, you gave me no no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You know, think about this. This is a prostitute. Most people, you know, even to a person who's going to visit with a prostitute, I mean, they're not real clean just because of the way in which they have to live. So here's this woman who's not real clean at all. And here she is, Jesus refers to her as woman, not as property, not as dog, not as sinner. How do the scriptures refer to her? Sinner. It doesn't refer to her that way. He says, this is a woman. And then it says that she starts to weep and to wipe his feet with the tears and wipe it off with her hair. I mean, just even the the bodily fluids of this woman, nobody wants to be with. And then the hair. I mean, usually prostitutes, even today, are not very clean. And and then she's using her hair to wipe it, and then she has this oil, this perfume, that she's wiping his feet with. I mean, when... If a man visits a prostitute, what's he do when he leaves? He washes, and he wants to get her perfume smell off of him. Wants to have no association with, you know, nobody to know that he was with that woman. Men work very hard to try to get their clothes to stop smelling when they've been with another woman. Here is what Jesus is doing. Jesus starts speaking to her and says, This woman... This woman, he didn't mind her tears, he didn't mind her hair, which may well have had lice in it, he didn't mind her perfume. This was all she had, and he appreciated it. Do you see what the whole way Jesus is turning this? Like he's supposed to kiss up to this Pharisee, who's got this distinguished position, and say, Oh, Mr. Pharisee, I'm so honored to be in your home. He didn't do that at all. This Pharisee never extended to him the right place of honor. But this woman, 
is extending this to him. Now, some people think that this was Mary Magdalene from whom he cast out seven demons. That is a, a Latin tradition. There's no evidence in Scripture. It may well be, but there's no, there, there's no evidence in Scripture that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. It is known that she was cast out, he cast out from her seven demons, but we don't know that she was a prostitute from Scripture. There's a tradition that says that, but we don't know for sure exactly who this woman was. But you see that, that uh, uh, this is how he starts dealing with the person. You see how Jesus reaches down to the people that nobody else will respect or care for. And here he is proving that he is a prophet because he knew exactly what Simon was thinking. Who knows what I'm thinking? A prophet knows what I'm thinking. He's demonstrated his prophethood. And he knows who this woman is because he says, For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven loves little. Jesus reaches down. If ever, if ever one thinks that they are worthy of God's love because of the things that they have done, look at this picture. Jesus calls her pinnacle of my creation. Pinnacle of what my Father created on the sixth day. When He made Adam, He said, it is not good. He made Eve, He said, it is good. This is what we're dealing with here. This is the pinnacle of my creation. She has used... Her tears, which are precious to me. Her hair, which is precious to me. Her kisses, which are precious to me. I mean, think about where, where a, a, a prostitute's mouth is. And it's not many people that want to be kissed by a prostitute. She is kissing his feet. And Jesus said, this is fine. He reaches down to the lowly. He says, your perfume is fine. I don't mind the association. Your perfume is fine for me. Jesus goes to the lowly and picks them up right where they are. And then he says, then in verse 48, he turns to the woman and he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? So again, the interrogation phase is not here. Jesus forgives. He says, I, your sins, which are many, are forgiven. And they say, who is he that he can forgive sins? In the book of Leviticus, there's all these offerings you make up. Never does the offering forgive sins. It says, you will be cleansed, you will be purified. Never does it say forgiveness is given. Forgiveness was given one day of the year on the Day of Atonement. That's when forgiveness came. The high priest proclaimed forgiveness one day of the year. Fasting took place, the Day of Atonement. All those offerings never brought about forgiveness. There are other places in Scripture in the Old Testament that talk about forgiveness. You go to the book of Leviticus, you offer up these sacrifices for this sin, this sin, this sin. That was for your cleansing, never for forgiveness. Forgiveness came on the Day of Atonement. Jesus stands there and says, your sins are forgiven. I mean, if this is not a proclamation of his priesthood, of his high priesthood, Jesus is the new high priest. Jesus is the intercessor. Jesus is the one. And this is why it took all these Pharisees so off guard. Whoa! 
How can he do this? Only the high priest can proclaim forgiveness. Who is this man to do this? Now Jesus is proclaiming his Messiahship. To our Western minds, this is not a proclamation of Messiahship. To them, to those Pharisees, this was a proclamation of Messiahship. And they asked him, in their own minds, how can any man forgive sins? And then Jesus went, boom, went one up on that. It says in verse 50, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He has now proclaimed salvation upon her soul. Who can do this but God alone? Again, this is a proclamation of his Messiahship. If, if, if you say, you know, uh, who is that old guy walking around the football stadium? You know, he doesn't look like a football player to me. And then you see the old guy take out his key and open up the door to the owner's office and walk in there and sit in the chair that belongs to the owner. You go, oh, that old, old guy, that, that's the guy who owns the team. I mean, that's a proclamation that he's the owner of the team. This is a proclamation in that mindset that this is God come in the flesh. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And then Jesus said, your faith has saved you. What saves a person? Faith. It was not your act. It was not that you cleaned my feet that got you saved. It was your faith that saved you. It's not the acts that save us. It's not the good things that we do that save us. It is our faith. Salvation is based on faith. The book of Ephesians is clear on that. That it is not by works that you are saved, lest any man should boast. But it is by faith in Christ that we are saved. By, it is our faith that saves us. Look at the theology in this passage that Jesus brings forth. He has the ability to proclaim forgiveness that only the high priest could do. And only after offering up offerings, Jesus could, boom, proclaim forgiveness. And he could offer salvation based upon faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the truth of God. For the things that you speak into our hearts because of the scriptures. Father, thank you so much for the demonstration of Jesus' love to the sinner. Father, in that we have hope. In that we have hope. Thank you, my Father, for your goodness upon us. You are so good, my Lord. You are so good. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for your kindness. Thank you, Father, for your mercies. Lord, I pray that you take these young people and you so work in their lives that if they ever feel that they've come to a place where they've done too much wrong, to ever again be received, that they would remember this. Father, I pray for those who, particularly women who may have been abused and feel that this has somehow marred them, to remember this, that you view them as the very top of your creation and you appreciate them. Father, thank you for the demonstration of what Jesus did that day. Thank you, my Father. Take these young people here, I pray, and conform them into the image of Jesus. Thank you, Father. Amen.